0: Hi, I'm Rachel Morris, and this is episode four of You Are Not A Frog, how to survive the really tough stuff. Welcome to You Are Not A Frog, the podcast for GPs, doctors, and other busy people who want to thrive rather than just survive. Now, working as a doctor is as demanding as it is rewarding, and navigating the high-stress culture at work leaves many of us feeling overwhelmed and exhausted. You may feel like a frog in boiling water, Things have heated up so slowly that you didn't notice the extra long days becoming the norm, you may feel trapped and that you have no control over what is happening. Let's face it, frogs generally only have two choices, stay and be boiled alive or jump out of the pan and leave. But you are not a frog and that's where this podcast comes in. You have many more choices than you think you do. There are simple changes that you can make which will make a huge difference to your stress levels and help you enjoy life again. I'm your host, Dr Rachel Morris, GP turned Executive Coach and Specialist in Resilience at Work. I'll be talking to friends, colleagues and experts, all who have an interesting take on this so that together we can take back control to survive and really thrive in our work and lives. In this episode, I talk to Dr Liz O'Reardon, the breast surgeon with breast cancer. But that's not all. Liz is also a blogger, a triathlete, an utter inspiration and co-author of the book, The Complete Guide to Breast Cancer. We talk about what it's like getting a diagnosis in your own speciality and how you can be your own worst enemy as a patient and what we can all do to make our lives just that little bit better. So I'm really pleased to have with me today, Dr. Liz O'Riordan. Liz, can I let you introduce yourself?
1: Yes, you can. I was a consultant breast surgeon who was diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 40 in July 2015. And despite having degrees and trained to treat breast cancer, I realized I had no idea what it was like. And I was thrown into nine months of chemotherapy, surgery and radiotherapy and had to learn how to be a patient. It took me 18 months to go back to work, and that was really, really difficult, finding out what my rights were and how to deal with the emotional and physical side effects of cancer. And then in May 2018, I had a local recurrence, which meant another six months of more treatment of surgery and radiotherapy. And I'm now coming up to a year of being cancer-free again. And in that time, I've also had to retire. So there's been quite a lot going on.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, I think Liz is uh, very well known now as the breast cancer surgeon with Breast cancer. And you've written a book recently with Trisha Greenhalf. and Liz has written extensive blogs about her cancer and her treatment, and has been, you know, I think really influential for for women in just getting the story out there. I first met Liz when we were doing a, a resilient symposium for the medical students, weren't we, at Cambridge, and you know was really struck by her story and her passion for resilience and actually talking about how to live a good life. And so I've invited her on the podcast today because I think there's a lot that we can learn through her experience and you know her real wisdom about stuff. And and Liz, what you didn't mention as well is you're also an amazing athlete and you're doing lots of cycling at the moment. Is that right? Yes, it is. So I did no
1: sport at school. I became a cycling widow and realized if I didn't start cycling I'd never see my husband. And that led to me doing a triathlon. My first a year before I was diagnosed, so I carried on training during chemotherapy and I'm now still an active Cypress central athlete and currently setting up a charity called CancerFit to encourage
0: anyone with cancer to exercise, because it really is the fourth drug. The power of exercise, is, it's an amazing thing. I think that's a whole other podcast we will we'll get you back, definitely. So I'm really interested, Liz, if you could just sort of tell us a little bit of the story. I, I guess the people listening will be particularly interested in, as a doctor, what's it like to become really quite significantly ill and then have to take time off? And how did you react and what surprised you in all that? when it happened?
1: So I think for me, it was I found out I had cancer in a different way. Most people are drip-fed information. You have a biopsy, you have a test, you have surgery, you find out. For me, because it's my job, I saw an ultrasound scan and I knew. I knew I'd need chemo, I knew it was big, I knew what my probable 10-year survival was. And suddenly, I was talking about myself as a patient to my parents and my husband, rather than talking about myself as a woman with breast cancer. Mm. And it was very hard for my colleagues who were treating me because my surgeon had been a mentor and a friend. I was treated in a hospital, not where I work, but where I'd worked as a junior doctor. And when my husband had been a consultant surgeon and medical director and locum chief exec, we were not a normal couple. And I think it's very hard for doctors to treat patients who are colleagues mm. and how to treat them normally and Forget everything you think they know because otherwise you miss things. And there were quite a few interesting stories of people not knowing what to do or what to say because I'm a consultant breast surgeon. One of the things I realized about treatment was doctors are very good at telling you what will happen to you, but they don't tell you how to cope. Mm. Kate Granger, who was behind the Hello, My Name Is campaign, she sadly died, but she was a chemo buddy, and she told me, this is a toothpaste you buy, and this is a toothbrush when your gums are bleeding, and mm-hmm. you drink water and you need to walk, and this is how you cope with diarrhea and that 's Twitter that was a lifeline because i didn 't meet another person having treatment for breast cancer for my whole nine months of treatment, and I came out to Twitter mainly because i couldn 't wear a cold cap because I have migraines i 'd be bold, people would know I had it. And I wasn't ashamed of it. Cancer wasn't a dirty secret. Plus, I couldn't not tweet for nine months about what was going on. The day after I was diagnosed, my husband and I decided to press send on a button telling Twitter. And I was flooded with support of people DMing me and contacting me, patients, doctors just saying, hi, how can we help? And that kind of encouraged me to start writing and sharing so I could pass it on to others. Mm. That's why I wrote the book. You, you have no, I, I didn't realize you lost all your hair when you have chemo. I knew you lost the hair on the head and I've spent years starting to cancel patients, but someone said, your pubes fall out on day 13. And I went, what? (laughs) I didn't realize you lost all your body hair. Mm. I didn't realize there were apps out there to help or what websites you Mm. don't know. what You don't know. And it wasn't
0: my job as a doctor or I thought to tell patients about this stuff. It's very difficult, isn't it? Because I think we are so used to sort of medicalizing stuff with our patients that when it comes to ourselves, we, That's why we do it for ourselves as well.
1: Yes, and I think doctors can often be very bad patients. I thought I should know how to handle chemo. You Mm. don't know how sick you're meant to be. So you stay at home treating yourself or ignoring symptoms because you feel silly ringing in for help because you're a doctor, you should know. And I think the the whole psychology of doctor patients and where do you fit in with that role? And I really struggled.
0: Mm. I think perhaps doctors fall into two categories the ones that just don't ask for help yeah. at all and I know that in your blogs a lot of the time you say oh, you know if I'd had to do this again I would have gone at that point and phoned up the oncology nurse or the chemo nurse and said yes. I need some help now but on the other hand yeah. we sort of shortcut the system a little bit diagnose ourselves and go straight to the person we think needs to help us without actually going through the, the systems that might be able to help Did yes. you notice that at all?
1: I knew I could email my oncologist and ask her a direct question <laughs> and I wasn't sure whether I should or should I go through the GP to take a couple of weeks and I think there are pros and cons to both but sometimes you just needed to be treated like a normal patient and go through that routine because it's there for a reason it just makes sure you get all the help you should have rather than bypassing it
0: you have to remember that you are a patient you're not a doctor and would you find that patronizing at all if you had been purely treated absolutely 100% like a patient?
1: I think part of me would have. Mm -hmm. And it's a really fine balance. And when I went back treating colleagues, I used to say, right, I'm going to talk to you like I talk to any patient because I'll forget stuff. And when I've Mm -hmm. done my bit, we can move on to higher things if you want. But I have to treat you like any other patient because people forget. And One of the hard things, actually, as a doctor who's a patient is you find you're explaining things to your friends and family.
0: Mm. they're
1: asking you what's happening and what's the diagnosis, even if your husband is a doctor. And it's suddenly they can't be the carer or the patient role. You're having to explain things to other people rather than saying, mum, can you just go on the website and look at that? Because I don't want to have to explain it to you, but you know you can. And there are so many roles you're juggling.
0: It's difficult, isn't it? So, you know, if you're looking back on it, what would you have done differently in that respect?
1: If that's a really tough one because everybody handles illness very, very differently. And hindsight and the retrospective scope is a fantastic thing. Yeah. You don't know how you're going to feel. And I think if wise me now could have told me something different, I would have ignored me because best.
0: Right. does that make sense yes you sort of have to live through something don't you to yeah. to get the and wisdom how
1: I coped may be very different to how another person would cope but I would say you have specialist nurses there for a reason to help you and I would actually say I bought 10 books even though I have all the knowledge I wanted to know what it was like for a patient and mm-hmm. I'd say For doctors to help anybody going through it, ask patients to tell you what websites, apps, forums they found useful, and create a digital signposting tool. Because I used to tell people, don't Google, it's scary. Mm. First thing I did at three o'clock in the morning, and you don't know where to go. And I think giving people a digital signpost to blogs, apps that they can then share to their friends and families will give you sensible, accurate information. Because I was struggling to find this myself and you come across some really scary stuff. And if I'd been told, right, Breast Cancer Care has a forum where you can talk to people going through chemotherapy that started in January. And this Mm. is where you can go to get help. That would have made my life easier.
0: And I must say, just for people that are listening in, Liz has written the most fantastic blog that has all these resources on it. I was looking through thinking, yeah, they're so rich there. And it's in the book as well. It's in the book, brilliant. So really recommend that. So looking back, do you think your expectations of how quickly you were going to get better, how quickly you'd be back at work, all that sort of thing, do you think those were realistic or do you think you put too much pressure on yourself?
1: I think I was completely naive. Okay, You have no idea what real fatigue is like until it hits you. Mm. Hemo fatigue, I could only struggle to do two pieces in a jigsaw in a day. You don't have the energy to look at a magazine or just watch friends' repeats. And it took me a good six months after finishing all my treatment to be able to function for a day without needing a day off to recover. Mm. And you think you're mentally ready, but no one can prepare you for going back and actually thinking about something important. It's fine working out what to buy for food to eat the next day, but to make decisions on people's lives, it's actually mentally tasking. And I thought I'd be fine. And people have said, no, no, just do a half day here. You think, no, I'm fine. I've been off for a year. I'm desperate to get back. I couldn't multitask. Hmm. I used to 10 people in the clinic and make notes at the end. And now I couldn't remember two things strung together. And I'm now an ambassador for a fab charity movement called Working With Cancer, just to help you think about things even if you're fit and active and running up mountains, you're still legally disabled. And that means your employers have to make reasonable adjustments to allow you to come back to work. Right. Say, sorry, you have to work full time if you can't, goodbye. Or no, you can't have regular toilet breaks. Or no, we can't cut the clinics because they're discriminating against you. That's something I didn't realize. And if you don't know what your rights are, you can't ask for help. But it was things like, what will you do when people don't recognize you? Mm-hmm. You can look very different after chemotherapy. And how do you want your colleagues to act and to talk? And do you want them to talk about cancer the whole time? And Mm. when you see an upsetting case, someone with cancer close to you, do you have somewhere safe you can just go and be quiet and cry in the toilet? And how do you build in that resilience that you need? Mm. Because How do you put your patient hat off and become a doctor? And then when do you take the doctor hat off and deal with the emotions you felt as a patient? It's... Mm. Minefield.
0: Yeah, it must be really hard, particularly when you I guess you when you first go back, does it get easier?
1: It did. So I had I spent six months shadowing the Adam Express unit. I work at Ipswich because it was felt if I work with strangers, although I, I work with them as a junior, they can be honest and say, Liz, that was really bad. Mm-hmm. You're quite ready to operate. You didn't break bad news very well and they could be honest because I didn't work with them. And that was really helpful, but it was mm-hmm. only when I was back doing it for real, telling someone they had bad news, they had cancer, having been through it myself was just horrific because you're watching yourself. You see yourself crumpling on the other side of the table and you just want to reach out and give them a hug. And you think I have to be the bad guy. And in my first MDT back, the second patient basically had my cancer, give or take a centimeter here. And I got to hear all the other colleagues around the table go, that's really bad. Mm. And you just have to smile and carry on. And it's learning to dissociate. I think it got easier with time, but it's having that support network at home and having at least one person at work who gets that you just need a breathing space. Mm. Not everyone is lucky to have
0: that. How do you find those people at work? Is it worth going around and talking to people and asking them or do you... Do you sort of have to rely on the relationships you had before or did anybody surprise you?
1: I think one thing you need to realise is that the people you work with are normally colleagues. Mm -hmm. You don't see them socially, you don't go out for drinks with them generally, they're colleagues and it can be quite naive to go back and expect to be welcomed into this wonderful friendly environment because they're not your friends and life moves on. I think you rely on the relationships you had before you left. There was breast mm-hmm. care nurse who I had quite a close relationship to and I felt, I just need one person I can confide in who gets it and I can say, I just need a breather. Because you need to be a doctor at work. You can't be a patient and your colleagues need to be able to treat you like a doctor. If everyone's mm-hmm. on eggshells, oh, don't ask her this, don't ask her that, you're never going to slip back into where you were. And it's trying to find that normality. But hopefully you can pick up one person who you can talk to who will get it when you're having a wobble. Breaking down all the time, you, you can't do your
0: role. And it, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It's so hard. Yes, because you, your colleagues need to be able to sort of trust you professionally that you're going to yeah, be making the right exactly. decisions. So Back
1: to work with the decisions, yeah. with the jobs, with the emotions. Otherwise, you're not ready to come back.
0: Mm. But I guess that doesn't mean that they shouldn't know that no, things are tough or that occasionally you have a wobble or it's getting that balance isn't it
1: i shared my life on twitter mm. a lot of my colleagues didn't read my blog didn't know what i'd been through i assumed everybody knew and again so potentially sending a round robin email asking your line manager to say doctor x has been off and they've come back you tell them what to say they've been off with cancer they've had this They don't want to talk about it at work. If you're having coffee and you want to bring it up, then that's fine. But as far as you're concerned, they're back, they're ready to go. And then it's dealt with. Mm. Being the centre of gossip and people are talking. And often a way of taking control and saying, right, this is what I've had. This is what I'm ready to talk about. Can just help give you some
0: control back. So this is interesting, Liz, because I know that you talked to the medical students about before you had the diagnosis of breast cancer, you had a period of stress.
1: Yes. The stress came about because I had no idea how taxing would be to be a breast cancer surgeon mm. when suddenly you are the one telling up to 10 women a day they've had cancer, it's come back, they need chemo. And you can do it back to back, five in the morning, five in the afternoon. And it mm. feels like all you're doing is breaking a woman, making her cry, pick her up, pass her on, doing it again. Mm. Go home at five o'clock on a Friday, broken. And just that, that stress of dealing with all that emotion. And you don't get coaching. It's part of the job. No one tells you how do you cope with breaking bad news. It's what consultant surgeons do. And I had a couple of months off and I realized I was the world's most boring dinner party guest. (laughs) (laughs) My life up until becoming a consultant surgeon had been jobs, exams, night shifts, research papers, exams. Hmm. All the hobbies I used to do, there were no time for. You move to different towns every year. You have to try and make new friends. There was never time to do anything. And that reiterated when I was off for 18 months of cancer treatment. What did I used to love doing? I couldn't remember.
0: Mm-hmm. I had-
1: I had no real life. And when I spent myself defining myself as a surgeon, you meet strangers on a holiday, what do you do? I'm a breast surgeon. When that's taken away from you, you think, what's left? Mm. And it was really sad because work should only be a third of a life. It's what you do outside that makes you a rounded, healthy individual. And I realized I didn't want my gravestone to say she was an amazing surgeon who always answered emails at 11 o'clock at night and went the extra mile. <laughs> yeah. I to say, she was an amazing mother, wife, friend, stepmom, athlete, you know, more mm. to me than my job. And I think a lot of old school doctors still believe work is the be all and end all and they love it. And I think it's hard as a woman. I think even if you're mm. married, you need another wife. Yeah, absolutely 100%. You know, it's it's really hard as a woman to try and do the family and children and school and jobs and everything and suddenly there's no time left for you. Mm. And it was very hard to say right, I'm taking an hour to go and do something for me away from my family and my friends because I have to look after me because I spend all day looking after other people. And it's very easy to put self-care at the bottom
0: of the pile. So what changes did you make then after that period of stress? Mm-hmm.
1: It was really hard. I had fantastic counselling organised through occupational health, and I didn't realise health are more than flu jabs. Uh, I had an amazing consultant who was fantastic, who helped me, who gave me support, who arranged CBT through the trust, and they've been a life support all the way through the stress and the cancer. And I didn't mm-hmm. realise you can tell them anything. They cannot disclose it to your line manager, to your medical director. They're just fantastic. Mm-hmm. And Anyone who's even briefly wobbling about stress or burnout or struggling, no matter how silly, go and see the occupational health consultant and get Mm. them on side because they can help you say, I need a couple of days off. I need to reduce my hours. They can try and help. Mm. Lucky. I was told, go and do what you love. Go and find what you're passionate about. And when you're stressed and you have no energy to brush your teeth in the morning, (laughs) the pressure of finding something you're passionate about is just exhausting. Mm feel sad that you don't know what it is and where to go. And lots of people said, try the mindfulness apps, try Headspace. And I hated them. Right. Me, trying to sit down and be mindful at half past 10 on a Wednesday morning just didn't work. You mm. can't force it. And I realized actually just staring out the kitchen window, looking at the birds, that's me being mindful. And mm. just where there are moments in every day where you're just thinking about nothing and just accept that's you calming down than trying mm. to force it. And it was realising that I didn't really have much of a social network because I've moved around all over the country and I I moved to Suffolk and lived in with my husband. Most of my friends were still hundreds of miles away. And how do you find people your own age to interact with? And it was just going out and walking and talking to people and trying to find ways to give yourself life for you outside of my husband and my family and my work. And that took a couple of years to actually build up a network. Mm. You don't realise you don't need it until your job is taken away.
0: Yeah, I think connection is one of the well, it's the the one resiliency protective factor. And I think you're right. When we're spending all the hours at work, it's really difficult to find those very deep connections, unless you've got some at work, which is also yeah. very protective. But you know, when do you have time to do the stuff outside? And actually, yeah, what is it you like to do? Because you know, you finish university, you do your exams, you do your training, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you're you're too knackered in the evening to do anything. Are you constantly stressed and thinking about work? Does your laptop come with you on holiday? Your to-do list have permanent residence in your brain and your worry about how to handle the latest crisis wake you up in the small hours? Then it's time to get your life back and that's exactly what our brand new online course will help you do. It's a 60-minute reset for healthcare professionals to shift your mindset so you can set boundaries and limits around your work Without the endless guilt that you've not done enough. It's just £27, and you can get instant access now when you go to slash get your life back.
1: Exactly. And I think it's almost lonelier being a consultant because you're not in the doctor's mess.
0: Yeah.
1: You often have lunch by yourself in your office with your secretary. Mm. And that was almost the most loneliest time because that amazing support network in the doctor's mess had gone overnight. And you're dealing with all these decisions and complaints that come in by yourself. And again, not every department is like that, but I know a lot of people have said, it's actually really hard being a consultant. Because the support network is gone when you from need it the most.
0: Yeah, I think that's very true for GPs as well. You yeah. know, GP principals spend a long time in their room doing paperwork. And at the best, they can come out for five minutes for a, a coffee with someone. But yeah, I think sort of being a senior doctor can be really quite lonely, can't it? Yeah, hugely. I know that in your blogs, you talked about your secret tribe and a way that you found connections in different ways. Was that by Twitter? Or how did you find this secret tribe and how did they help you? It was all through Twitter. So when I told the world I had cancer, a couple of
1: doctors DM'd me. One was the late Kate Granger. One was another sadly now died doctor with malignant melanoma that came back. And one was Trish Greenhouse. Okay with and she didn't tell anyone she had cancer for 18 months but we had chemo on the same day oh right we could share the constipation and the pain and the diet but just having three doctors to talk to who got what it was like to be a patient and how sometimes you weren't treated great because you were a doctor was just fantastic and following on from that a twitter call for other doctors to help and i've now got a whatsapp group for doctors with cancer all over the world all stages all ages sadly one of us died yesterday which is a bit mm. the problem of helping people with cancer is that your friends die mm. even being an advocate on twitter for breast cancer you have to dip in and out because people die and it's just too close to home but i think healthcare professionals need that support to know what it's like to be on the other side of the table and it's just this my husband used to think he got quite jealous who are talking to at three o'clock in the morning? And I'm not having an affair. It's just someone who gets what it's like. Your family love you, but they can't understand the crazy thoughts going through your head. And that's where connecting with somebody, whether it's online or in real life, can just help you know that you're normal. Someone else is going through this. You're not the first person to think that.
0: Do you think that people with stress and anxiety find the sort of supportive networks that maybe people with, with cancer do? Or do you think it's a bit of a... Well, obviously, it's a completely different illness, but people, I think, are less likely to come out and talk about it, aren't they?
1: Yeah. I was off with stress in 2014, and the stigma was still huge around Mm -hmm. it. And then Matt Haig wrote his books, Reasons to Stay Alive, and kind of broke the stigma of men talking about it. Yeah. Then with the junior doctor burnout crisis, you've got the Facebook Tea and Empathy group, and I think people are realising they need to connect and need to talk. There's Mm a need for it and you find a way of making it if it's not there. And on the huge takeoff of podcasting,
0: there's Mm -hmm. so many
1: podcasts now about mental health and resilience and the Yumi and big C with cancer, people are are coming out and being open. And I think Mm -hmm. it's fantastic that it's okay to talk about anything. And you're kind of drawn to people going through a similar boat and I wish I'd been diagnosed 5 years later when all of this was up and running and I'd have had access to all these other things so it's fantastic it's coming through it's accepting that doctors do really really hard jobs and medical school does not train you to cope with the psychological side of being a doctor and mm. moving possibly to a different hospital every year leaving your friends and family behind you're just meant to do it mm. and you know training you don't get told how do you cope how do you keep your hobbies how do you look after yourself it's no wonder people are burning out mm. Plus, when I was a junior doctor we had the firms you were yeah. on corporate Same team of people, you knew each other, you were a team. Now it's shift work. You don't know who's on, you don't have that camaraderie. And I think that's so sad.
0: Mm. So, really having to try and seek out those sort of kindred spirits where you work is quite a task, really, but actually, really, really important to try and maintain that feeling of the old firm. Because it was wonderful, you know, it was a really hard job, but you were all knackered and you were all knackered at the same time, weren't you? And you could go to the pub and debrief or whatever, obviously. In a very anonymous way. <laughs> yes. I
1: think now a lot of it is online. Sometimes mm. people don't want to fess up and tell someone they're struggling because of what might happen. One thing I do want to talk about that's really helped me is something called the Wheel of Life.
0: Mm. Heard of that. I have. It's about sort of rating various areas in your life. They use this a lot in sort of resilience training and yeah. they? Yeah. I came
1: across it years ago when I was considering quitting surgery. I just mm-hmm. got fed up of the negative humiliation and the bullying, and I ended up sticking with it. But it. When I was off with cancer, I looked at it again, and it's, I think, kind of eight spokes, the kind of work, money, social life, friends, family, charity, exercise, and how fulfilled are you? And I realized most of my energy was going into work, Mm. stressed about money, you don't open the letters from the bank, you don't give anything back to charity, your friends, your family don't get much time, and you realize how unbalanced your life is. And I think every once in a while, it's good to check in and say, right, okay, what can I do to make me feel more balanced, to feel more calm, just to help make me a more balanced
0: person? Yeah, that's a really good tool. And what we could do is put a a link to the wheel of life in the show notes. So if anyone wants to just click on that and and just do it. And it's a really revealing exercise. And I think you can, if you want to add your own spokes, can't you? So things that are particularly, particularly important to you. So Liz, what are you doing now? What aren't I doing? What, what aren't you I know you told me you've got about eight, eight different jobs at the moment.
1: So I had to retire for two main reasons. One, I had a double dose of radiotherapy, which limited the movement of my left arm, which meant I couldn't safely operate. But psychologically, having had breast cancer twice, I couldn't go back and be a non-biased doctor treating patients. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard going through ill health retirement. The process you have to go through, the pension is tiny, you worry about money financially, what am I going to do with my life? Because the 20 years I spent defining myself as a breast surgeon has been taken away from me against my will. Mm. And
0: that,
1: that was really, really hard. But actually, my six months of sick leave, I've been working 10 days a week. <laughs> so I now spend one day a week reviewing deaths at a local hospital, looking at records for good and bad care, medical nursing communication, so we can learn what went wrong, what went right. And that's been quite challenging coming to terms with how people die in hospital, but it's actually quite nice to know that it's not what I thought. It's often a really, really good way to die.
0: Right.
1: I'm an ambassador for a charity and movement called Working With Cancer, who help employers and employees get people back to work. One in two of us will get cancer. 40% of people with metastatic cancer want to carry on at work and they'll live for many, many years. And it's no longer the case that you've got cancer, you can't work. There are so mm. many things can do. Mm. I'm setting up a charity CancerFit to try and encourage anyone with cancer to exercise. It really is the fourth drug. I'm writing articles for the Mail on Sunday and the Times about breast cancer treatments and development, which is quite exciting to be able mm. to share what I've learned and get accurate facts across. I'm potentially writing another two books, still doing talks all over the country, <laughs> while trying to find time to garden and cycle <laughs> and run and swim. so you actually have no time to be a breast surgeon anyway Liz I wrote a blog because I was in denial and I thought if I can put it down on paper it might make it seem real and people responded and said thank you Mm. Through the writing and the speaking I've been able to help so many more people than Mm. I would as a breast surgeon in Ipswich and I get that need that doctor I'm helping people and it's doing that that gets me up and gets me going in the morning One of the problems I have found is that because so many people ask me to help them to write something to talk, when do I find the time to realize what I want to do?
0: Hmm.
1: What is my new career? And do I want to stay in the conscious space? And I read a brilliant book called, Will It Make the Boat Go Faster?
0: Oh, yes. Stephen's question.
1: I don't do a lot of self-help books. There's another one I'll mention. I was told about that book by Gemma Hillier-Moses, who's an athlete who had lymphoma, who set up a charity called Move to help young children with cancer exercise. And it's behind the 5K your way, the park runs for people with cancer. And I was just talking to her about, I'm being pulled in so many different directions. And she said, read this book. It's about an Olympic I'm thinking, if I eat this burger, will it make the go faster? If I go on that stag do, will it make the go faster? And she said... When people ask you to help them, think, will it help you as well? Will it help your profile? Will it help you get where you're going? And if it won't, it's okay to say no and focus on yourself. Mm. That
0: was a huge wake-up call. Yeah. I love that concept of, you know, that rowing team and actually, is this going to help? Is this not going to help? Because we could spend our lives doing stuff couldn't we and and particularly for for other people which is sort of important for them but not necessarily important for us my favorite book about that is called essentialism by Greg McKeown and he talks about doing fewer things but better and it's a really great business book and about you know how you make the choices between one thing and another and how you really focus on sort of your biggest asset which is you and your own physical and mental health and all that sort of stuff. So that that that's my particular one about that. Did you say you had another good one? Yes, I do. Am I allowed to swear?
1: Please go ahead. Okay. <laughs> so, I am a huge. I have a huge girl crush on Sarah Knight. I have to get the name. I think it's the life-changing magic of not giving a fuck.
0: Yes, I've seen that. in W o. Smith and there's all sorts of spin-offs, isn't there?
1: I've met. I've met her. Um, yeah. So the first book basically says you have a limited amount of time, energy, and money. mm Hmm. And you should only spend them on things that don't annoy you and that make you happy. Mm. Who cares if you wear the same outfit to work every day for a month because you have bought been triplicate and wash it, but you always have peanut butter in the fridge. And it, it's things like you can't make people like you at work, but you can make them respect you for doing your job well. So stop worrying mm. if they don't like you because the whole world is not gonna like you, but the people you're gonna get on with. And what is important to you and spend your time, energy and money going towards those goals and worrying about, you know, whether you've got a child and they've not got the right play date, silly little things like that. I'm a worrier. I will worry and worry and worry. And I will have a conversation with my husband in my head and imagine what he said and then act on it. That, that's how my mind works. <laughs> this book is calm. I think it's called Calm the Fuck Down. And basically, <laughs> stop worrying about things you can't control. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You're spending time, energy and money, worrying yeah. on things you can't control. And she kind of has, yeah. she calls it a problemeter of how likely are things to happen. So yeah. my cat's going to die. Yes, because all cats die. So stop worrying about it until you're nearly there. There's yes. no point worrying. Mm. Or is there going to be an earthquake tomorrow? Well, there may be, but there's no point spending all your money earthquake your house in Suffolk because it's probably never going to happen. And just that way of thinking, right, okay, mm. do I really need to worry about this? Can I stop? Can I affect the outcome? And her yeah. books are brilliant. They're really, really funny. They're written with a huge sense of humor. She apologizes to her mum for swearing. But <laughs> I go back every once in a while to say, yeah, okay, this is a waste of my time.
0: Absolutely. And I couldn't agree more. And that's, I guess, the reason for this podcast is that people, and I think particularly doctors, we, we, we can spend quite a lot of time focusing and stressing out on things that we absolutely can't control like what our hospital trust is doing or the, the change that the government making to the NHS or what the CCG have done but actually I think sometimes we just don't bother taking control over what we can control like what our hobbies are and what we're doing outside of work and I think a huge part of that is learning to
1: say no Mm. I'm a yes person I say I used to say yes to anything as a junior doctor because I thought people wouldn't like me or respect me or give me a job if I said no and that carries over into all of your life. It's like, I guess you want to help people. So if you mm-hmm. say no, they might not like you, which is one of the drawbacks of social media, because there's a lot of people just putting mm-hmm. stuff out to get people to like them. and It's very artificial, especially Instagram. But I can say no. I now would tell junior doctors, I was one of those people who had 10 projects on the go, and you never finish them. The days before email, sorry, did that bounce, or so the dog ate my homework, and then the <laughs> registrar moves, it doesn't get written but you feel guilty if you turn something down. And then you're mm. so busy juggling all these projects. You have no time for anything. And i now tell anybody, you have two projects on the go at work. One you're collecting data for and one you're writing up. Right. And if the head of the department says, can you just do this? Say, I can, but not until six months because I will need to finish these two projects. If I say yes, it won't happen. Mm. And as a consultant, I'd much rather a genie doctor was honest and said, I just don't have the time rather than me chasing and chasing and chasing them up. Mm. This is another great tip from someone. I can't remember who. He has a distraction iPad. So when he comes home, his phone gets charged. If someone wants to call him, they can. But he doesn't have emails on his phone, on his iPad. Mm. His network or Twitter, but he can't look at work emails. Because you can't act on them. Why are you looking at emails Mm. at midnight? Because you can't. And then you're looking at emails and you're not talking to your family. And it's a really interesting thought of, I'm not paid to work when I get Mm. home it can wait and on a Friday it can wait until Monday and that discipline is more to life than your phone and I'm as guilty as anyone of being hooked to Twitter but it's just take a step
0: back mm. and it's really hard to say no because I think we've had this sort of deep biological drive in us to be liked by the tribe because if you're not liked you're thrown out the gang, yeah. and you'll get eaten by a bear how has what you've been through and your illness affect you know it, I guess that must affect your perspective on life and your ability to say no
1: it's been really hard. I think when you first start writing and being asked to talk, it's really flattering. Mm. Yes. And I live in Ipswich, and I get a lot of pe- invites to go and talk, and it'd be Newcastle, Sheffield, <laughs> and that's a 12-hour train trip, and I was yeah. talk-free, and I'd be knackered, and I felt I can't say no, because I know I can make a difference to mm-hmm. people in that room, and I was knackered, and I've had to realize I gave twenty talks in the space of two months, most wow. of three, And because they're students, conferences or charities, we can't afford to pay the travel and I do it. And actually, it's knackering.
0: Mm. It's
1: just learning to set boundaries about what really is important.
0: Yeah, I guess once you've decided what's really important, then it becomes easier to say no to the other stuff. So actually, these are the people I'm going to focus on speaking to and and everything else. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a really hard thing to do. I think just because we're asked, we feel that we then feel obliged. And it's
1: flattering; Someone likes yes, me. Yes, yeah.
0: Nice. And if I say no, they won't ask me again. So, Liz, I think we're almost out of time, but it's just, I'm going to definitely invite you back because I think there's so much more we can talk about because I particularly want to hear about your joy as well. But I think I'll we'll do that. <laughs> we'll get you back and do that. Just what would your top three tips, looking back at everything that you've been through for... Doctors who are facing either a period of stress and burnout, or you know, a really significant illness. What would your top three tips be for them?
1: So, I think you need to get a medical professional on your side. Ideally, occupational health or your GP. The earliest sign that you think you're not right, go and ask for help. Because we're doctors, we let things go far beyond where they should, and often you're calling for help when you're really, really, really ill, not at the early stages. So, I would say listen to the warning signs and go and talk to someone and say, is it okay? I'm not coping. I need time off. I would tell people you're not alone. Someone has gone through this before. And with the beauty of social media and forums and websites, just start Googling and actually reaching, just reaching up to someone else and having conversations to realize someone else has been through this. They've been where you are. They've got through. That can really help you feel you're connecting with someone. Because if your family and friends don't get what stress or depression is, they don't know how to cope. One of the problems I had when I was off with stress was I was told to go out and enjoy myself. Mm -hmm. And the guilt I felt about walking outside smiling in the sunshine because I'm meant to be ill. And what if someone Mm. from work saw me enjoying myself when I was meant to be off sick? And it's realising mental illness is an illness and it is not your fault. And it's just as serious as physical illness. And don't feel guilty. Mm. That time to remember what is important to you and baby, baby steps. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think this thing about getting help early is really important as well. And for GPs, we have the GP Health Service now that offers a lot of As GPs. We don't get occupational health no. in the same way as you at a hospital, but the GP Health Service can get you very quick access to talking therapies and yeah. other things and everything that you need to do. I'm just
1: going to say, I remember feeling guilty when I was off work with stress because I had a job, I had a husband, a nice mm-hmm. house, I didn't worry for money. And I just met Kate Granger, who was dying of cancer.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, in some ways, dealing with cancer was easier than dealing with stress.
0: Right.
1: Cancer was an illness which had a definite treatment, hopefully definite conclusion. You go through the motions, whereas with mental illness or stress, is it my fault? What have I done? It may come back. I may have this for life. And it's just getting over that fact that it's not your fault and it can happen to anyone.
0: So your final question. My final question was, what would you say to doctors who haven't got cancer, who aren't necessarily off with stress or mental health? and What would you say that they should be really focusing on taking control of at this point now in their lives, just to make things better for them and making them more resilient?
1: Okay. I would say life is short and you never know what's going to happen. Mm. and there are things you can do to help prepare yourself for that so the boring stuff the financial the wills the lasting power of attorneys make sure all your finances are in order because if something happens you might not have time or energy to do them i would remember that work is only a third of your life Then a the third sleeping, a third working, and it's everything you do outside. And mm-hmm. what do you want? This sounds a bit sad. What do you want people to put on your gravestone? Do you want mm-hmm. to be remembered as the world's most pioneering heart surgeon? Then fantastic, go for it. But actually, mm-hmm. it's the life outside. And if something bad does happen, if you do get cancer, you do get ill, it's the family and friends who are going to be there to support you. So just every once in a while, put the phone down and connect. Is they're the reason you live. They're the people who love you, who appreciate what you do. If you get signed off work, you'll be replaced with potentially a bad locum. I thought I did an amazing job for my patients. And, you know, everyone thinks they're not replaceable. You are. All the trust wants is to get someone to see patients, to get the numbers done, to keep the waiting list down. You are not. You are just a tiny cog in a big wheel and you are replaceable. So if the thing you spent your life yearning to do is taken away in a heartbeat, it's everything else that defines you.
0: Wise words. Thank you. Liz, if people wanted to get in touch with you, where should they go to?
1: So my website is liz.oreardon.co.uk and my email is on there. I have a TED talk called Jar of Joy they can talk about. I'm on Twitter at Liz underscore Arirden and Instagram as o'reardon_liz. And feel free to message me or ask me about anything. I will always reply.
0: But you may say no.
1: <laughs> but you will get an answer
0: absolutely thank you Liz so much for being on the podcast today definitely get you back there's so many different things I want to talk to you about now but thank you and thank you so much everybody for listening if you want to join the mailing list go to wildmonday.co.uk and do subscribe to the podcast tell your friends about it and do rate us if you can so thank you so much and hope to see you for the next episode goodbye Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe to the podcast and also please rate it on iTunes so that other people can find it too. Do follow me on Twitter at Dr Rachel Morris and you can find out more about the face-to-face and online courses which I run on the youarenotafrog.co.uk website. Bye for now.